Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, educating, empowering, and connecting Christians to stand on God's Word and truth. A man who won't stand up for his own principles is not really a man at all. Get involved by emailing comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. You can't handle the truth! Now, here's the host of Stand Up For The Truth, Mike LeMay. Unashamed of the gospel and standing on the truth of God in the Bible. Hello, friends. Mike LeMay and Crash Connell. We welcome you to another edition of Stand Up For The Truth. Today is Friday, so we read your comments, answer your questions. We are always going to point you to the Word of God and remind you that we are going to give you our best interpretation of God's Word based on our learning and experience. But it is your responsibility to go to God's Word to seek his Holy Spirit, to confirm the truth of his word. He is the one that is eternally righteous. We give you uh, our best interpretation of the scripture. And Lord, this hour, may we approach your word with humility. And may we always remember, Lord, that you are God and we are not. Father, you've given us everything in your word we need to know about you, about ourselves, and about your great gift of grace through the sacrifice of your son. Help us, Lord, to show ourselves approved as workers by rightly handling your word. But as Paul also admonishes admonishes in those same verses, Lord, do not let us quarrel over insignificant words or tales or opinions. So help us, Lord, to be people of graciousness as we seek the wisdom and understanding of your word. And we thank you for this opportunity to share your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, Crash, we start off today. Our first five questions are about a very, very cheerful subject, Christian persecution. These are going to be painful for some to listen to. Uh, This one is from Katrina. Are we allowed to use the names? Yes. Okay. Mike, uh, she writes, I respectfully disagree with your assessment that the American uh, Christian churches will undergo persecution because they will continue to cave in to secularists when they are pressured. So if they, uh, if they were true churches of Jesus, they would undergo persecution. But because they are fake churches, more interested in money and power instead of serving God, they will never feel the persecution that Christians around the world face. Katrina also writes, for those who might disagree with me, consider this. Only five churches stood with Stand Up For The Truth when the city tried to destroy their churches. So what makes us think that most churches will ever stand on the truth? She writes, churches in Appleton did nothing when the same ordinances were passed in their city. She says they lack courage, honor, and commitment to God's word. We must face reality. A majority of so-called churches care more about being popular, well-attended, and rich instead of caring about the uh, precious truth of God's word. Well, Katrina, thank you for sharing your comments. And uh, there's a lot of meat in them. Uh, I always want to caution us that... uh, you know, sometimes we never know how we're going to respond until persecution knocks on the door. And the Word of God reminds us that when we are put on trial, do not worry about what we will say because the Spirit will give us the words. So, Katrina, I, I think there's there's a lot of truth in what you said. You know, when we are unwilling to stand up uh, against aggression against us as Christians now when we have the freedom to do so, it is logical to question if we will do so when those freedoms are taken away. Crash, I think H.R. 5 and its future uh, will tell a lot. You know, there's a continual attack on religious freedom. Uh, Interestingly, the Pew Research Foundation has found that Christians are the most persecuted people in the world. And so it it is ramping up. It's it's getting worse and worse. Um, We need to stand up for our religious rights as Christians, our our, uh, freedom to speak God's word in complete truth. Uh, more and more churches are folding. I think, Katrina, you're right. I think many of them, uh, or at least some of them, when push comes to shove, will value their tax-exempt status more than they will value truth. But uh, uh, you never know. You just never know. The true people of God will respond in a godly way when it happens. Well, um she said churches in Appleton did nothing. I mean, do we know of anybody that kind of pushed back on it? No. 
I mean, because we know Alan Dupree went through some some stuff, but I don't know if there was. Well, the the uh, the ordinance she's speaking of was actually enforced in Appleton before it came Correct. up to Pierre. They Depeer just cut, used that, right? Right. They just cut and pasted it. So, and from what I know, there was there was little to no dissension or or argument against it, and it's in force right now. And uh, one day it's going to be used against the churches. I know that you uh, didn't get any emails from them saying we stand with you guys as no. a church in Appleton. No. Yeah, so. All right, uh, stand up for the truth, questions and comments. Ben writes, we should welcome growing discrimination and even persecution in America because it will divide true believers from the fake ones. It will bring true biblical unity to our churches. And history has shown that real revival almost always starts with God's people when they're uh, persecuted. Yeah, I, I think that's very true. Um, so, you know, welcome it. I don't know, Ben, that any of us are going, boy, God, may I be persecuted this day. I don't think it, it, we, we welcome it. Um, you know, I think the key question is, do we fight it? And I think we do. I think we should fight it. But I think we should also realize the inevitability of it, according to the Scriptures. And most importantly, more importantly than fighting it, prepare for it. Anne writes, by failing to teach the doctrines of Christian suffering, our church leaders are setting us up when persecution comes. Some pastors will criticize the Joel Osteens and Benny Hens, but in reality, they line up with their prosperity teaching nonsense. We're being told how special we are as Christians in America and how God wants to give us wealth and security. And when they are torn from us, many will wonder what, what else God's word cannot be trusted, leading to the great falling away. Yeah, when, when you fall for the deception that as a Christian, God wants you to always be happy, healthy, and wealthy, that's just not in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus talk about our faith in him will mean we will always be healthy and wealthy. And Anne, I think you're onto something. If we fall for that, and then the day comes when we don't have the health and wealth, uh, people who are not well-grounded in the faith are going to question what else in God's word they can no longer trust. So thank you, Anne. And uh, I think like, I like what she said about what else is wrong in the Bible. We're going to yeah. blame the Word yeah. and Instead God. Instead of ourselves. Yes, because we, we could never get the interpretation of God's Word wrong. So yeah. it must be something God did wrong. must be something God did, yeah. Jill, uh, it's, it's Jill, right? Yes. All right. God has always used persecution of those who claim to be his people to separate true from fake followers. When the heat is turned up, people's real royalty, uh, loyalties rather are tested. I would submit that this coming persecution is not only inevitable, but helpful in that it will purge our churches of fake Christians and inspire true believers to be all more passionate about the gospel. Yeah, I thought about that long and hard crash. Uh, her statement that uh, the purging of the churches will inspire true believers and, and really shake out the church. Um, I, I, I think that will happen. I, I'm always alarmed when Jesus says that uh, uh, our own family members and friends will turn mm -hmm. us over to the authorities to have us killed and they'll think they're doing God's will. So I think you can, you can glean from that that some of the heaviest persecution on true believers are going to come from fake Christians. You know, uh, Christians who, who uh, are, are Christians in name only decide to follow the government, decide to follow the Antichrist, and they're going to turn on true believers. So, I mean, persecution and discrimination— uh, may well be most intense in in churches in those days. I'm thinking of when uh, uh, week uh, the week before Passover, they were all saying, Hosanna, great is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then days later, they're saying, crucify him. Crucify we want Barabbas. Yeah. That's a classic example. Hey, Lord. You are God. Here's the here you you know, go. palm now, trees. And either deny that or be put to death. And it was crucify him. Yeah. Yeah, that's That's our human weakness. Okay, Mark writes, please take some time to share from Matthew 10, 16, 22. Did you want me to do that first? Or uh, I... We'll do that after the after All we right. read the question. Uh, let me try that again. Please take some time to share Matthew 10, 16 through 22 on air, and we'll see that persecution is inevitable. So why are we fighting it? I'm not saying we should not stand up against it, but we uh, we but would we not be better off preparing our hearts and minds for what Jesus said was inevitable. Also note who the perse persecutors are, professing believers and family members, like you said. How true believers will be known during persecution. The Holy Spirit gives them boldness and the reality that those who cower and do not remain faithful will be vanquished to hell. 
Some will say that uh, this refutes the doctrine of eternal security of the uh, believer, but it does not. The Bible says that those that abandon the faith never were with us uh, to begin with. That's 1 John 2, 19. Do not be deceived. We will be persecuted, and we, and we deny Jesus during the persecution. It proves we were fake Christians all along. Now we'll read the verses. All right, just a moment here. Let me get to that uh, scripture. So we have all these emails. Are right, 16 through tw- uh, 22? Yes. Okay. Uh, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent, innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. 18. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them, to the Gentiles. But when they hand you over, do not worry about how or what you are to say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speaks, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks to you. And 21, brother, brother will betray brother to death and a father, his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end will be saved. Well, thank you so much for the email, Mark. And I I think you raise a great point that some will say, this is proof against the eternal security of believer. But I believe what Jesus is saying here is that their denial of the faith will prove they were never believers at all. And their confirmation of the faith, since it comes from the Holy Spirit, prove that they do have the grace of God and the Holy Spirit living in them. So the the dilemma we have as Christians, as we seek to sharpen one another and uh, uh, point us to God's word and spirit as he increases the work he's doing in us, is we never really know deep down if that person we're dealing with is a true committed believer. I shouldn't say we never know, but sometimes we don't know if that person is truly a committed believer or if they're just faking it. And persecution, going back to our earlier emails, is a great way to prove who is of God and who is of the world. So uh, it will happen. It will happen from our own family. Jesus says it'll happen within your own church. But again, he who remains faithful, he who endures to the end will be saved. And the reason we will endure to the end is that the Holy Spirit in us, as Jesus said, will give us the words to speak at the time of trial and tribulation. You're hearing Stand Up For The Truth. Dave Fioralzo has the uh, has the day off today. I'm crash filling in. And we're reading from comments at standupforthetruth.com. Comments at standupforthetruth.com. Elaine uh, wrote in, thank you for having Gary Kaw on. He alerts us to what is happening behind the scenes, but always brings us back to the reason for our hope, Jesus Christ. One comment on, uh, one comment on his thoughts about what would happen under the gold standard. While, while it is a good idea, the short-term pain would be enormous because under the gold standard, your spending is automatically limited to the amount of collateral you have to borrow. In this case, the amount of gold in the U.S. has. So it would force the government to reverse decades of deficit borrowing. And I don't think our politicians or the American people have the stomach for greatly reducing spending. Thank you, Elaine. It's a great point you raised. You know, back in the 1980s when I was in banking, there's two types of loans a customer can receive, a secured note or an unsecured note. Now, a secured note would be uh, you're going to borrow $10,000 and the collateral is the car or you're gonna borrow $100,000 and the collateral is the home. And if you don't make the payments, they take away the car or the home. Now an unsecured note is basically a loan that is given you based solely on your character and your ability to repay it. So you might get a 10, your charge cards are a good example. Mm-hmm. You, you run up charge card debt. Revolving accounts. Revolving accounts, that's a charge card debt. If you don't pay it, they don't come and take your stuff away. They just take you to court. Under the gold standard, now, Lane, I think you're right on this, that under the gold standard, um, the gold is the collateral by which the federal government prints money. So it can't print more money than it has gold. And Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971. And up to that point, we had almost always had balanced budgets. There were times we ran deficits during the wars, but that money was always repaid. So again, if you look at it, that the gold, when we're on the gold standard, the government says we have, let's say, $30 trillion in gold. So therefore, 
we can have $30 trillion in dollar bills out there in the economy. The reason we Nixon took us off the gold standard, I won't say the reason he did, but a, an effect of taking us off the gold standard was we now went from a secured to an unsecured note, and we can run up these mm-hmm. charge cards, if you will, to the point now where we're uh, $23 trillion in debt. Now, I don't know, Elaine, if we went to the gold standard today, what would happen with that $23 trillion in debt? Uh, you know, the first thing that would happen is we wouldn't be able to print more money. And as Gary said yesterday, that would strengthen the American dollar. A dollar today is worth 10 cents compared to what it was in the 1930s. You can only buy 10% of what you used to be able to buy with a dollar. It, it's, you know, I mean, think about it. A dollar used to buy, what, two pounds of beef. Now it won't even buy one candy bar. So it's really, it's it's depreciated in value. If we went to the gold standard right away, I'm not sure what would happen with that $23 trillion in debt. I don't know if it has to be repaid immediately, but I do know that it would stop us from producing more money and, and stop the government from having an unsecured loan and, and running up these tremendous uh, this tremendous debt that we have. I think if you explained it even to a, a 12-year-old that every time we print a dollar bill, it weakens the one that we just printed. Yeah. You, you know, it just doesn't I, I, it doesn't make sense. And I was going to ask you why uh, Nixon did that. And because and, uh, I, I, don't, I don't I was too young to remember that. Yeah, I, I don't remember either. You know, the, the other the other thing about this, though, is that um, I just lost my train of thought. But let me, give, give me a second here. Um, oh, the government is so far in debt. It's, it's, so the government's twenty three trillion dollars in debt. Right. That doesn't even count the Social Security Trust Fund. When Social Security was established in the 1930s by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, what it basically said was, Americans, we're going to make you give us Mm -hmm. a percentage of your wages now, and we're going to put them in a trust account for you, invest them, and then when you retire, we're going to give you the money back. So this Social (coughs) Security Trust Fund was to be set aside from the federal budget and never touched. There's nothing in there but yeah, IOUs. Been, yeah, they've been tapping so into it. So w- when, as the number of our workers decreases and we old people start to go on Social Security, according to the latest estimate of the federal government, by 2029, the Social Security system is going to be insolvent. And your only option at that time is to either raise taxes on young people or to cut Social Security benefits. I have a hard time believing a bunch of 20-somethings are going to want to say, hey, I'll pay 10% more in taxes to keep uh, Grandpa Mike on Social Security. So you've got this this debt crisis welling up, and what do we do? We just passed another budget that increased the uh, deficit by another $500 billion. So uh, do you agree? Do you think uh, the politicians will never probably go to the gold no, standard? No, I, 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 I don't see any way they're going to do that. So. Um, a couple of ways you can connect with us before we go to break. Uh, text the word speak up to 90100 or send your email to comments at standupforthetruth.com. When we come back, we'll go to Betty's question. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit standupforthetruth.com. Now, back to Mike LeMay. Well, let's go next to uh, Betty. She's got some frustrations she wants to share. Crash. She writes, like many, I am frustrated when I see professing Christians, including my uh, many family and church members, continue to vote for Democratic candidates to support the murder of babies and promote this gender dysphoria tragedy. But I I always try to remember that none of us, even as Christians, is above deception. Mike, I am thinking about your book, The Death of Christian Thought, where you talked about how Jesus used questions to get people to think and convict them on their poor thought process. So when a Christian friend tells me they support the Democrats, rather than condemn and argue with them, I ask, is there anything Democrats support that you believe is against God? If they say no, I mention abortion, homosexuality, and gender dysphoria. If they start to defend or argue their position, I just leave them alone. Interestingly, many times they come back at, uh, later admitting they're starting to think differently. A gentle rebuke turns away wrath. I believe the scriptures say, thank you. Well, thank you, Betty. And yeah, sometimes people need to be... Um, addressed in a way where they don't feel threatened or belittled. And Jesus just mastered that crash. You look at all the times he asked the Pharisees and the Jewish people questions rather than making statements on them. And what I write about in The Death of Christian Thought is, if you make a statement on me, Mike, you're ugly. 
I don't even have to think about it. I can either agree or disagree. Um, but if you ask me a question, you force me to think about it. And as I think about it, hopefully if I'm a rational human being, facts start to come to mind and I can start to challenge my own uh, deeply held beliefs. So I, I like the formula you use there, Betty. Uh, and you're right, a gentle rebuke turns away wrath. We should not drag ourselves down into the mud where we become yelling, screaming fanatics like those on the other side of the spectrum. Ask good questions, let them wrestle with it, and when they come back, be prepared to point to the scriptures for an answer that is truthful. Kyle writes in, We are on the verge of another economic crisis in our nation, but most people do not see it because unemployment is low and the stock market is at all-time high. But the major underlying foundation is built on shifting sands of $23 trillion in debt. We are like a family opening up new charge cards while just paying the minimum payment on our numerous cards we already have. Eventually, there are no new charge cards we can open up and everything collapses. I believe this scheme is exactly what godless Marxists want because it will force a complete overthrow of the capitalist system and usher in a strong man uh, who says he has a way out. Start preparing now for what the book of Revelation warns. Famine and economic disaster because it's just around the corner. Thank you, Kyle. There's a lot in here, and uh, a growing number of economists are agreeing with you that while everything looks hunky-dory in unemployment and economic growth in the stock market, that there's a ticking time bomb beneath the surface. Um, and it's going to be much worse, they believe, than the 2008 severe correction that uh, swept Barack Obama into office. I love your analogy about the charge cards because you can, you know, I don't know about you, Crash, but probably three times a week I get an offer in the mail for another charge card. Now, Nancy and I have two charge cards that we use because we accumulate points and we pay them off at the end of the month. We, we don't ever carry the debt over. But the problem is you start running these charge cards up, and you might owe $5,000 on a charge card, and it says minimum payment $35. Hey, I know. I'll pay the $35. Well, eventually this debt gets greater and greater. You open up more and more charge cards. But then you get to a <clears throat> get to a point where companies look and go, you got too much debt, we can't give you a new charge card. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you're faced with, you know, I think I heard the average American family has $17,000 in credit card debt. That isn't a home mortgage. That isn't a car loan. That's unsecured credit card debt. And it, much of it's at, what, 15 to 18% interest. So, Oh, much higher than that. Oh, really? Oh, yes. In fact, I was just about to mention, I remember those days of the 14% interest. Now, maybe if you had yours for, for decades, you might have been grandfathered on an old one. But I'm seeing, like you said, the offers coming in. I just That's the first thing I check, and it's around 23 to 30%. Wow, 23 so to 30%. So like an $8,000 credit card, if you got an $8,000 balance, that's like $300 a month just to in, in interest. interest. In interest. Wow. Hey, to your point, uh, Kyle, that you believe this is exactly what godless Marxists want, I think you're absolutely right. The free enterprise system, what we know as capitalism, is based on individual responsibility. And Marxism is built on collective responsibility. Uh, and there's no doubt to me that as radical socialists spend more and more money, many of them, their goal is to bankrupt the system. Uh, about a year ago, David and I covered a show on the Cloward-Piven strategy. They were two economic uh, so, uh, sociologists from Harvard, I believe. They were married. Francis uh, uh, Piven, and I can't remember uh, the other one's first name, but they said basically by overloading the system, the system, system will collapse under its own weight. Now look what's happening at our southern border. We're bringing in, what, a million illegal immigrants a year, and we're putting them on welfare and we're paying for their education and, and, and everything else, we're getting to a point where the number of people that are contributing to our economy is far less than those who are taking from the economy. And that is going to lead to an economic collapse. It is exactly what the godless Marxists want uh, because then they'll be able to say, see, capitalism doesn't work. Now, historically, capitalism has worked. Marxism has never worked. It didn't work in the Soviet Union. It didn't work in Cuba. It didn't work in Venezuela. but uh, So I think it's, it's part of a, a master scheme they have. It is working, and I could not agree with you more. Start preparing now for what the book of Revelation warns, famine and economic disaster. Now, the argument against that is, well, we'll be raptured. We don't know that. I mean, you know, we, there, there's economic and 
disaster and famine around the world right now and the rapture hasn't occurred. So don't don't fall for the, well, we won't go through that because we're raptured. Because there's Christians around the world right now that don't have food on the table and are under economic duress. So um, when the Lord decides the rapture is great, but in the meantime, we should prepare for the worst because it could be just around the corner. I was thinking about Bernie Sanders. We want the benefits of doubt uh, of debt, rather, but we don't want to uh, pay the debt. We Bernie Sanders this. was telling all these young people, "You went to college and, and have this debt, and now you can't pay it off. So let's let's uh, let's get rid of that debt." Yeah, and what are we like? One point four trillion dollars in student loan debt right now, and that's another whole story crash because you look at when the federal government um, really started uh, infusing cash into the public education system. You've got college professors on tenure that do nothing and are collecting $100,000 to $200,000 a year. The cost of college has went from an average of $2,000 a year to almost $20,000 a year. It's necessitated these students to get student loans. Many of them walk out of school now with eighty dollars to $200,000 in debt, and they walk away with a useless degree that doesn't earn them a living. And again, under Marxism, those people need to be taken care of. Now, capitalism... We take care of the poor who cannot take care of themselves, but we don't take care of the poor who will not take care of themselves. And that just flies in the face of, uh, of Marxism, because under Marxism, it's all about equal outcomes, not equal opportunities. Uh, here's uh, quite an email from Scott. There is a married couple who attends my church where the husband comes from a Jewish family. The, couples are, uh, the couple are Christians and in no way is what I'm about to say a judgment of their faith, because I believe they have proven to be a very strong Christian family. That said, they often will go to the husband's family's house to celebrate major Jewish holidays together, like Passover. They partake in the festivities, even donning their traditional, uh, what is that word, yarmulks? Yarmulkes, uh, uh, sure I think. Okay, okay, sorry. And other symbols of Jewish faith. They maintain that they... Uh, they only do it for the sake of tradition and as a way of keeping the family together. They even say that Jesus celebrated Passover himself, so there's no issue there. To me, it seems odd to celebrate another religion's important days when you don't claim that religion. That uh, This may not be a perfect comparison, but I highly doubt Elijah Abraham still celebrates Ramadan with the Muslim members of his extended family for the sake of tradition. No one else in my church really seems to think twice about it. So maybe it's just something I am overanalyzing. But I was just curious what your thoughts are about the idea of basically dabbing, uh, dabbling rather in the festivities of other religions if you don't claim that religion itself. Thank you for your time. God bless. Well, thank you, Scott. Very interesting situation. And let's contrast Christians who celebrate Jewish holidays with Christians celebrating Muslim holidays. First and foremost, the God of Islam Allah is not the God of the Bible, Yahweh. The God of Judaism is the same God, the Father of Christianity. So there's the distinction there. Having said that, why you celebrate the Jewish festivities is the important thing here. If you celebrate them thinking they make you righteous with God, they don't. They can't. If you celebrate them to honor God, that's a matter of individual conscience, and feel free to celebrate them. You're absolutely right that Jesus celebrated the Passover, and really the Passover is our version of Easter. The Passover was when they were in Egypt, and they were to put a lamb's blood on the mm-hmm. doorpost, and then the angel of death passed over that house and killed the firstborn of every family that did not have the blood. Uh, the symbolism between that and the Lamb of God, the blood of Christ, is, is certainly very obvious. So I wouldn't be concerned that uh, family members are celebrating Jewish holidays, but I would ask them, why are you celebrating Jewish holidays? If their answer is, well, we want to be righteous with God, go to Romans and show where Paul said, you cannot be made righteous by God by adhering to the law. It is only by the grace of God that we are now completely righteous in his eyes. So if they're celebrating as a way to honor God, awesome. But if they are celebrating as a way to get in God's good graces— then they're back under the law and they're not saved. Make sense? Is, would that be the same as um, Protestants and Catholics kind of doing the same thing, or is that, you know what I mean? You mean as far as? Uh, I'm Protestant, but I have family that's Catholic, so sometimes I go to the, their Catholic 
uh, masses or those kind of things. Would that be the same thing? Um, Because I know there's people that sit there and go like, okay, what do I do with this? Yeah, I think well, he's kind of doing the same thing. You know, c- Catholics recognize the God of the Bible. There's sacraments that they have. You know, the Eucharist, they believe that that is the actual body and blood of Christ. We as Protestants believe it is symbolic. So uh, I, I think it could be similar from that point. If you go to a Catholic Mass, I don't, mean, I don't think that means you're going to hell because uh, the same God is being worshipped. Um, there's some different doctrines there we need to be aware of and, and, and to be honest about. But in the case of a Christian, you know, in fact, Brian McLaren does this. He celebrates Ramadan. And he celebrates it because he believes that the God of right. Islam is the same as the God of the Bible. And to do that, no, you're wrong. You, you, are, you are worshiping a false god. Or if you're a Catholic or a Protestant, you are worshiping the same god, even though you've got distinct doctrinal differences you know, in some issues. Well, I, with, when I was thinking when Scott was saying that, I was going like, I know that there's sometimes that tension. And we, and we have to ask ourselves, why is this tension? Is it something that I have a problem with? Like he said, am I overanalyzing this? And uh, but I, I find myself trying to doing the same thing. But, you know, I, I don't I don't worship the way I did when I was a Southern Baptist, you know, or yeah. s- something like that. And it's gonna like, what am I doing? Is this tradition or what? You yeah. Know? And, you know, it, it tradition's an interesting thing, because on the one hand, Jesus admonished the Pharisees for placing their tradition above the word of God. But then Paul says to honor the traditions of the Christian faith when we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. We are honoring a tradition of the Christian faith. He broke the bread, he poured the wine, and he said, this is my body, this is my blood, figuratively speaking, of course. So there are certain traditions of the Christian faith we should honor, um, but we should never be a slave to tradition, because that's really what the Jews were. They were the Pharisees had become slaves to tradition and set aside the teachings of God for the traditions of man, according to Jesus. I think uh, Scott uh, might uh, want to hang out in Hebrews for a little bit there, yeah. because that's that book is to the, was to the Judaizers. Yes. Judy writes, Hi, Mike. Could you give an answer on the truth about uh, truth taught by Randy Alcorn? Every third Sunday evening, our church is watching his video and hearing a sermon on his series on heaven. I haven't attended, but wanted to know what you thought of this preacher. I I read Randy Alcorn's book about heaven. Um, I'm always torn when I read these books. Uh, you know, I, some of them have been proven to be frauds. Um, Alcorn speculates, and he, he's very clear. He's speculating about what he thinks heaven is like. Um, but I haven't seen anything or heard of anything of Randy Alcorn that would raise me to a level of alarm in listening to him talk or preach. I haven't seen any controversy out there. Um, I just say when you read these books about, you know, somebody visiting heaven. And I think wasn't Alcorn the one that was, he was actually dead for like an hour or two? I don't remember, but I, I have never seen anything wrong from Andy, Randy no. Alcorn in his other books. No, I haven't either. He, he speculates. I think he was the one that was in a car accident, was dead, and then revived. Is that how he came to Christ? I'm trying to remember. I, I, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I do not remember. So, I mean, I, when you read those books, I would hold them very loosely. Remember, Paul was brought to the third heaven and saw things of unbelievable uh, magnificence, but he was told not to share them. John was told in the Spirit to write down the book of Revelation. So um, I I just uh, uh, take all these, uh, hey, I went to heaven books with a grain of salt, but I've never seen anything doctrinally about Randy Elkhorn that concerns me. And um, my my question is, uh, I hope that Judy's not asking for your advice before she goes and checks it out. Because when somebody writes in, like uh, one time on Q90's page, I posted a Paul Washer quote, and it got a little bit of stink, and they were saying this, this, and this about Paul Washer. And I said, okay, I've never seen that. Can you send me some information about this? Because um, what is your concern about Randy Elkhorn? Because I haven't heard anything yet. So Nor have I. And I, and I did do some research Judy and I, I haven't really seen any major controversies around him. Again, some people look at his book about heaven and they take it with a grain of salt and, you know, wondering if he truly was taking Is he adding anything to Scripture? Nothing that I saw. Okay. But again, you know, Scripture doesn't talk a lot about what heaven is. We know it's a place of eternal rest. We know it's a place that does not have sin. We know it's a place where there's no sadness. Jesus wipes away every tear from their eye. Other than that, we... The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about what heaven is. I and I, I 
think that the gospel hinges on the resurrection and not heaven, and that's just yeah. you, you know you know it's he- like heaven is the effect of yeah. the resurrection. Heaven to me is going to be with God, Christ, and, you know, Christ forever. That's 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 kind of what I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking too much about the mansion or the gold streets, yeah, or you know, or will we travel I mean, through time and space? I yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it will. God will uh, reveal it to us when we get there. Yes, Amen. All right, let's see here. We got time for this one, Ted. On Stand Up for the Truth, writes, uh, I have been studying Romans in depth lately. When Paul talks about matters of the conscience, it is deep and thought-provoking and brings up an interesting potential dilemma. Paul is talking about the foods we eat and what we drink along with the days we rest, but some Christians use conscience as a license to sin. I think I heard you address this on a, a show last year, but cannot remember which one. Could you address again, please, how matters of conscience should be handled with Christians? I just remember your answer was a very good one. Thanks for all you do. Well, thank you, Ted. Uh, the answer I gave was this. There are things in the Bible that are clearly always wrong. Adultery, lying, cheating, stealing, gossiping. These things are always wrong. So if your conscience is telling, if you believe your conscience is saying, eh, you know what? I think it's okay to cheat on my wife. No, the Bible is clear that that is always sinful. There are things where Paul talked about, and again, remember Paul was writing uh, and, and, and convincing people that the law could not, could not save us. It only pointed us to guilt. And, and Paul was talking about, as you point out here, Ted, matters of food, uh, uh, matters of, of drink, and matters of what day we worship. To one man, mm-hmm. one day is holy. To another man, another day is holy. The Bible doesn't say you can't eat meat or you can't drink wine or you can't have a cigarette. These are matters of conscience. So if your conscience is telling you you think that something is okay, the first thing you do do is go to the Word of God and you find out if God prohibits that behavior. So again, well, in my conscience, I think it's okay to cheat on my wife. No, God says don't do that. So your conscience is then following your flesh. Rather than the spirit well, of God. and because I've been in Romans two, I've been studying in Romans, and Romans one and two kind of sets up what God does. As and I'm thinking of the seared conscience, and so how can we make a uh, biblical sin decision if we have a seared conscience? Because God kind of did that. Okay, you want to do that? Now I'm going to turn yeah. you over to that. And what does Paul say? You you will look at right as wrong, and you will look at evil as good. So once your conscience is seared. You have no Holy Spirit in there, and you are totally driven by your flesh. Now, your flesh tries to influence our conscience, Ted, and the Holy Spirit, if you're a believer, tries to influence our conscience. And remember that the key thing is the Holy Spirit will never say something that you cannot back up with the Word of God. So Word of God needs to be the last place we always go. When we come back, a question from George about Israel. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to Mike LeMay. Text the word speak up to 90100 or email us comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. And another email from George. The only times I ever really get convicted is when I listen to your show. Thanks for that. My question is about what it means to support Israel. Israel seems aligned, allied with Saudi Arabia and Al-Qaeda. Anyone who opposes Shia Iran. This disgusts me and I don't know how to feel. Well, thank you, George. It, it, it is confusing. Uh, let me kind of, uh, first of all, clarify a little bit when you said Israel seems aligned with Saudi Arabia and Al-Qaeda. Saudi Arabia is a Sunni country. Al-Qaeda is a Sunni radical Muslim sect. But Saudi Arabia also opposes Al-Qaeda and, and the Muslim Brotherhood and all these. So Saudi Arabia does not support Al-Qaeda. Well, I should say this. Officially, they don't support Al-Qaeda. However, the Al-Qaeda terrorists who struck us on 9-11, many of them were Saudis, supported by Saudi. All that to say, George, it's very confusing. Um, Israel is finding alignment with Saudi Arabia. You write about this because Saudi Arabia is currently fighting a proxy war with Iran. And Iran is a Shia nation, and Shias believe that when Israel is destroyed, their Mahdi, their savior, redeemer, will return to the world. So Iran is de- is Desper- desperately wants to destroy Israel 
because they think that brings their Mahdi to the surface. Saudi Arabia opposes Iran. Saudi Arabia is a little more of a capitalist nation. It's also a Sunni nation. So Saudi Arabia is masterful at playing both sides of the fence. I don't trust the Saudi government farther than I can spit. But Israel is finding at least a defensive alignment with Saudi Arabia to a point that Saudi Arabia even said Israel, if it attacked Iran, could fly over Saudi airspace. So Israel is looking at this as a matter of survival. Here's the important thing, George, to remember when we talk about um, supporting Israel. Israel is currently in a state fallen away from God. They have denied Jesus Christ. They, they waited for the Messiah for 4,000 years, and when he came, they had him crucified. So they are in a state of denial, but God's promise to Israel is eternal. He will restore them one day. He restored them as a nation in 1948, and when the Antichrist comes to power, many Jews are going to turn to Jesus Christ. When the Antichrist proclaims himself God in the, uh, in the seat of the temple, many Jews, it says, will look upon the one they have pierced, Jesus, with sorrow. And there will be 144,000 Jews that become incredible evangelists for the Christian faith. So God has not given up on Israel. His plans are still in place with Israel, but they have fallen away from him. And for the past 2,000 years, because they were, uh, uh, because they had Jesus crucified, they are in a state of unbelief and they are in a state of separation from God. But God's plan with Israel is to restore her. Uh, uh, Israel will be the one nation left during the millennial. Mm-hmm. They'll be that one nation. So we support her with prayers. We understand she is a godless nation right now in many, many ways, but she is still the apple of God's eye, and God is not finished with Israel. So, uh, George, it's a it's a tough, tough situation. But, again, remember that God told Abraham, I will bless those that bless Israel, and I will curse those that curse Israel. So even though Israel's in a fallen state right now, we bless Israel because of God's promise. We, we don't know where and what God is up to, but we trust that God does. I think that's a struggle with a lot of Christians, actually, yeah. what to do about Israel. Uh, moving on, Aaron writes, Thank you for your calm discussion on the issues of predestination, foreknowledge, sovereignty of God, and man's responsibility to respond to God's calling us. We are always quick to label things we do not understand. And you're correctly pointed out that we think Calvinism or Arminianism is, looks vastly different from what those men believed and taught. Just what is it in our fallen nature that compels us to stir up controversies without where none should exist? What caused Eve to di- directly disobey God and to eat from the fruit? What compelled David to take, uh, take a census when God told him not to? What caused David to lust after Bathsheba and risk everything when he knew it was wrong, and then to cover it up by sin trying to trick Uriah to sleep with his wife, and when that uh, didn't work, to plot the murder to cover up his sin. That is what the whole argument over God's sovereignty and man's responsibility falls. The scriptures reveal to us that neither party is 100% correct, but instead of humbly believing that the Bible we look for, uh, let me get that again, Uh, we're not 100%, but instead of, humbly believing the Bible, we look for loopholes and justify our beliefs by twisting Scripture, the very bread of life. He writes, uh, when this happens, we go from bad to worse, as Paul warned Timothy, and pretty soon we are far away from the perfect doctrine and peace that Jesus gave, uh, gave us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the prophets and law are summarized in these two commandments. But we just cannot leave well enough alone and have to prove ourselves the smartest person in the room. And as a fallout of our arrogance, many want nothing to do with the church. Is there a lot in there? Thank you, Aaron. I think you are really, really on to something here that we, we, as Paul told Timothy, don't argue over foolish genealogies and don't argue uh, over, over semantics and things. Jesus told us to focus exactly as you told us, Aaron, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Could you imagine, Crash, if we spent as much time as Christians doing that as we did arguing over doctrine? If we really focused every minute of every day on loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself, 
Could you imagine how much more profitable our lives would be, how much more peaceful our lives would be, and how the gospel would spread? But there's, there is something in us, Aaron, and you're absolutely right. It's that sinful human nature we have that is prideful, and we want to think we're always the smartest guy in the room. Because we do a radio show, we're smarter. Because I'm a Calvinist, I'm smarter, or whatever. And, and none of us has the humility before God we should have. Uh, and as we were wrapping up that Calvinist-Arminist argument last week, I, I said to people, why do we try, have to try to figure out why and how God did all these things instead of just enjoying the fact that he did do them? He saved us from our sin. He saved us from eternal separation. We're like someone, who, Crash, if, if you gave me a million dollars today, and I just kept, well, why Why did Crash do it? Why did Crash do it? Instead of just enjoying the fact that you love me enough to give me a million dollars. But we always look for motive. God's motive in saving us was that he loved us. And he did it in a way that did not violate his righteous, just, and holy nature. There had to be a sacrifice for sins. Jesus was that once and for all sufficient, perfect sacrifice. And why we have to argue about well, did God choose us or did we choose him? It just deflects from the beauty of the gospel, and it gets us into useless arguments instead of focusing on the love of God and the love of our neighbor. I just have learned in my six years here at QNIDFM, if I'm talking with somebody and going like, is it a possibility that you could be wrong? And they say no, then I'm going like, we're not having a discussion then. Yeah. It does, this cannot happen. Well, and the only way you can say, no, I'm not wrong, is if you quote the Scripture in complete context. And the problem is we don't even know how to interpret the Bible anymore. We interpret it in a contradictory way. We don't use causality. Um, you know, we, we, we think as humans instead of thinking like God thinks. So the only way I could ever say I am 100% truth and sure about anything is if I'm quoting the Word of God in context because he is the only source of truth. And let's see, well, that was, uh, where did we leave off? Was it uh, Ralph? We left off with Ralph, yes. Okay. The discussion of, Ralph wrote in, the discussion about online churches was intriguing. While many times they can be a cop-out, sometimes they are a necessity. I live in a small city with four churches, and all four of them are very liberal and anti-biblical in so many ways. Now one would make the argument that I should attend for the fellowship, but as the Bible says, what does light have to do with darkness? Our solution has been we meet with one another uh, with one other couple in our city and share biblical teachings from Jack Hibbs and Jeff Solwald on your radio station. Uh, we then have a time of discussion, fellowship, and communion. Well, thank you, Ralph. And yeah, what your experience is what the Bible called church, a fellowship of called out believers. I think it's always better if you have a biblical church in your community to attend it and to participate in it and have fellowship within it. But Ralph, I'm sure you're right that there's some cities where there's not a biblical church anymore. So do you go to an unbiblical church for fellowship? As you point out, the Bible says, what does light have to do with darkness? I think what you're doing is a, is a good solution. I would continue to look for a solid biblical church, but in the meantime, uh, study the word of God and have fellowship with one another, discuss his word, uh, uh, commune, over the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So I, I, I like your solution to a difficult problem. I think of, uh, I don't know about his, Ralph's situation, but I, I know many people that travel miles and hours to a church that they found. So I don't know if we're stuck in this convenience of nearby, but uh, I remember uh, I used to travel about an hour to church, uh, hour two and an hour back, because I found a church that I... I thought was solid. You know, the, the, this online or home church is a is a two-edged sword, though, too, because if you just decide I'm going to start a home church because I don't like the way churches are run in our area, if you're not careful, you can become that which you don't which you detest. You can start to become arrogant. You can start to become uh, isolated. You can start to think that you're something special in God's eyes uh, because you lead a home church. So uh, there is no perfect solution, and there won't be a perfect solution until we have. Um, fellowship with God in heaven. So in the meantime, seek out good biblical churches, uh, find one if at all possible. But in the meantime, if you cannot, um, you know, do what you're doing. Meet, study God's word, discuss it, and, and break bread and have fellowship. 
I think Sta- we've got time for one more here. Stand Up For The Truth, who are doing your uh, questions and comments at comments at standupforthetruth.com. Jake wrote in, the only options true believers may have one day is, is online churches uh, to meet secretly in our homes. Do we really think the institutional church will resist a government takeover when it is dependent on that same government tax laws to survive? Two things, Jake. You're right. One day that may be our only option, but today we currently do have options, so let's explore them. Uh, do I think the institutional church will resist because its tax laws will be violated? No, I don't. I don't think they will. I don't think many of them will resist because they are so uh, dependent on the 501c3 tax code right now for their giving that uh, many of them, when that carrot is pulled away, uh, they will submit. Not all of them, but many will. So, But in the meantime, there are many good, solid biblical churches out there, and do your best to seek one and have fellowship within it. So uh, I think that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, uh, Anthony and uh, Patrick and James and Manny and Jeff and a few others. Sorry we could not get to your questions today, but uh, we will get to them next week. When we come back, we will wrap up this week's show and talk about next week. We're getting ready to wrap up today's show. Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. Now, here's Mike LeMay. Hey, thank you, Bobby. Bobby just emailed in. Hey, guys, Randy Alcorn's book is a biblical look at heaven. He has not claimed any trip to heaven. I'm reading it now, and it's very sound doctrinally. Thank you for that clarification, Bobby. Interesting verse we're going to cover Monday. Genesis 6-4 says this, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old the men of renown. Tim Chafee of Answers in Genesis joins us in studio Monday. He's written a new book about the Nephilim, and we're going to talk with Tim about who are these (laughs) Nephilim. Are they still around? Are they coming back one day? Uh, Tim are is they a, aliens? Yeah. Are they aliens? A lot of questions. I yeah. mean, we've got about a million questions to ask Tim and only an hour to cover it. We're going to do the best we can. So Tim Chafee, Monday, the discussion of Genesis 6-4, who are the Nephilim? For Crash Connell and David Fiorazzo, I'm Mike LeMay standing up for the truth. Have a very blessed weekend. And always remember to be bold, strong, and unashamed of the gospel because the Lord your God is always with you.